0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning and, and welcome. Uh, my name is Gretchen Sullivan Soren, and I'm the director of the Cooperstown Graduate Program in Cooperstown, New York. And we're going to be talking this morning about changes in demographics. Um, and I think, more importantly, what you can do about them. Not changing the demographics, but what you can do. <laughs> what you can, and what you can do about it. <laughs> How you can meet the needs of new audiences. In um, thinking about um, this session, um, I don't know how many of you remember this issue of Museum News from 1998, March and April of 1988. Uh, cover article was written by John Falk of the institute for learning innovation um, it's called visitors who does who doesn't and why and in it Falk proposed that museum's future health and vitality depended on maintaining and if possible increasing the number of visitors who visit well not news um, to any of us today and there are several other writers who uh... writers and thinkers in the profession who have warned about the possible effects on museums of future demographic changes. Um, one particular article of note is Ron Crouch's Rules for a New Demographic Ball Game, which appeared in uh, 2004 in Museum News, um, and it was done as a, originally as a lecture at AAM's uh, Learning in Museum Seminar. So the issue has been with us for a long time, well over a decade, Um, And the things that outside uh, futurists, outside and inside futurists, have predicted are that by 2020, the United States population of Latino Americans and Asian Americans is expected to double. The African American population will remain stable, but many African Americans are relocating to the southeast, reversing to some extent the Great Migration the non-Hispanic white population, the traditional donors of museums, is declining considerably. And by 2020, 52, 53.2 million Americans will be over 65 years old. So obviously there's a graying of America as well. So the purpose of today's panel is to look at some of the things we have learned through marketing studies and audience research and to explore two models of institutions that have begun to address the new demographic realities. We have three wonderful speakers for you. I would like to introduce all of them and they will offer prepared remarks. After all three of them have spoken, I would like to open the floor to your questions um, and your comments and discussion. Our first speaker is Ann Ackerson, Executive Director of the Museum Association of New York. Um, Ann is a very creative and very exciting museum leader, um, and she is going to provide us with some background information, a context, if you will, for thinking about strategies to address demographic changes. Ann will discuss a survey that was conducted by Reach Associates, a marketing and research firm Um, uh, The survey was of 5,000 visitors to 13 outdoor history museums and she'll talk about the trends that they uncovered. Our next speaker is Kyle McCoy, who is Director of Education for the Arizona Historical Society. She's our first case study. And our final speaker is Emily Timmel, who is the project manager for the Brooklyn Children's Museum uh, exhibition called World Brooklyn.
1: Good morning everybody and hello New Yorkers. (laughs) I see a lot of familiar faces. Um, I think we should also say that this session is being podcasted or recorded. So um, we're going to try and remember to talk into the mic. And when you guys have questions, you're going to have to speak into a mic too. So we've got a portable one up here as well. Um, I'm going to just share with you, and I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, so. I'm going to try and make it more of a narrative and less of statistics. Um, uh, A couple information from a couple of studies uh, that Gretchen alluded to, uh, the first being um, a study of outdoor history museum visitors that was done by reach advisors um, earlier this year and um, another study that's older but I think has a lot of applicability to it's still valid I think and uh, has a lot of applicability and this is um, um, a presentation that was given by Shelley Williams who was uh, Who's with Lord Cultural Resources? And in 2000, so it is eight years old. Um, she um, she gave a presentation uh, called "Gazing into the Crystal Ball: Trends for the 21st Century." But I think there's a lot of applicability, and I want to share some of that with you. Now, um, that you, that presentation used to reside on the web. I'm not sure it's still there. So, if you would like a copy of her remarks give me your business card. I've got an electronic copy, so I, I'm happy to email it to you if you think it would be um, applicable. So the first thing I want to talk about uh, is sort of these large-scale demographics, and and Gretchen um, shared some um, in- information from those two articles about that, and I'll just go into a little bit more detail. But I think um, there are four big trends that we need to just be aware of, and I'm sure that most of you are aware of them in terms of just demographic trends and the first is that we are becoming more diverse Um, that in fact by 2020 uh, we're going to see the U.S. population of Hispanic Americans uh, double Um, immigration especially from Hispanic countries um, is increasingly uh, is increasing ever increasing, and uh, they're one of the fastest growing ethnic groups in the United States with an expected population to reach 53 million people by 2020. So, The other thing is, our uh, the other big trend is our audiences are becoming more highly educated. And that's um, been a trend upwards uh, since World War II, thanks in part to the GI Bill. Um, but what's significant about this is that... Um, it, it seems from many studies that a bachelor's degree or more is an indicator as to as to um how frequently a person is involved in arts and cultural activities so that's kind of a marker um and i think you probably see that um to to a good extent in visitor studies that you might be doing at your institutions um, The third big trend, as Gretchen noted, our audiences are becoming older. And in 2011, the oldest wave of baby boomers will start to turn 65. (laughs) And there are 78 million baby boomers. So the grain of America is here. It's been here, and it's growing. Uh, And the median age is steadily rising. We know that right now, participation in cultural experiences climbs through middle age and then tends to peak at around age 45, or uh, age 45 to age 64, and then kind of declines a little bit. But I think actually with the with the baby boomers, there, there may not be so much of a decline, or there will eventually be. But I think it might be later, after age 64, um, particularly when we know that many baby boomers are starting second careers at age 64. So um, the fourth big trend is that... At, as our audiences are growing older on the one hand they're also getting younger on the other hand and that's the other big trend becoming younger and here typically um, when you've the the pattern has been that when you look at the American population it has typically been a a pyramid with older generations at, at the top aging out getting smaller and aging out and dying and younger folks at the base we're in, a, we're in a situation right now where it's not a pyramid, it's an hourglass. And we've got this huge, huge group of baby boomers and older at the top of the hourglass, going down to a relatively narrow band of Gen Xers, and then widening, widening out um, with Gen Ys and younger. So it's a, it's a really, it's a, I believe, a unique phenomenon um, in our country at the, at the moment. And certainly, you know, keep in mind that those, those children aged 12 to 19 and their parents have tremendous buying power. Um, and usually those kids are not actively involved in arts and cultural organizations on their own. Usually they're active through schools or some other kind of structured programs, but they're an audience certainly to think about cultivating over time. So a last note about population in the United States that's interesting, I think, is that we're moving towards a time when the two main population groups are going to be the 50 in overcrowd and the 30 in undercrowd. And between 2000 and 2012, and we're almost there, there's going to be another baby boom that, um, with an annual birth rate that's expected to exceed 4.3 million babies. So that's a lot of babies. (laughs) So... Keep that in mind. In the, early, in the early part of the 21st century, we can look forward to a population that's bigger, more diverse, more educated, and as a result of their education, will value lifelong learning opportunities, and that means participation in arts and culture and history museums. There's also a, another trend at work here uh, as well, and it's a trend I, I think we all uh, feel, and that is we feel we have less time. Less time to participate in leisure activities. That time has become the currency of the new millennium. However, despite, um, despite its label as the no vacation nation, leisure time in the United States has actually increased in the past 40 years. But there's this per- pervading sense that we don't have any of it, <laughs> that uh, there's just not enough hours in the day to pursue, to fit leisure in. And that, I think, may stem from the fact that, uh, that we're running around a lot more than we were 40 years ago, delivering children to all sorts of activities and running errands over larger geographic areas and um, engaging in more uh, personal improvement activities. But it also means we're watching a lot more TV. And uh, there are a lot of studies out there about the climb in television watching. And... Um, And now I suppose actually television and the computer obviously are probably the two big uh, um, sponges of our our leisure time. So whether or not your time is a deficit, people are getting very choosy about what activities they engage in, and they often decide at the last moment what they're going to attend. So one of the things that uh, people are choosing in all of this is the authentic experience. I'm sure you've heard that over and over again. Museums, theaters, dance companies, all have the authentic experience to offer. And that is our um, our ace in the hole, I think, uh, going forward. So now let's take a brief look at uh, the Reach Advisors study, um, which uh, was undertaken this spring. Interviewed 5,000 visitors. Uh, Reach Advisors is a marketing and demographic firm uh, based in Boston. And they're doing a lot of work in museums. Um, they worked with 13 outdoor um, history museums on this on this particular survey project. And um, if you're not familiar with Reach Advisors, I urge you to seek out their website. They have an active blog uh, at reachadvisors.typepad.com. Susie Wilkening, who conducted this study, is going to be at this conference. She's not here right now but she's coming in later today and she's giving a session I think tomorrow and uh, she's instructed me to collect your business cards because <laughs> you're going to have a lot of questions I'm not going to be able to answer but um, she's happy to talk with you and she really wants to share this information um, so who, So here's what they found out, who visits outdoor history museums um, empty nesters number one Moms, those Gen X moms, number two, followed by older men, <laughs> and <laughs> undoubtedly looking for the older women that go, that are number uh, four on the list. Um, I'm not giving you the percentages, because that may just muddle things up, but um, let, me, let me just say that empty nesters are the number one at uh, 27%. So um, gen wires come in at 4%, so kind of low. And then there's a category called other that I, I truly don't know what makes up other. Um, uh, anyway, uh, two-third of, two-thirds of these folks say that they visit... Outdoor history museums to immerse themselves in the past. The overwhelming majority of these visitors believe outdoor history museums are important because, number one, they preserve the past, number two, they share stories of everyday people, and thirdly, they're places for children to learn about history. And those responses are by the vast majority of these folks 79% and up say so those are the top three the top three things. When these visitors were asked about their impressions of their visits, two thirds of them said that the site was well maintained and had good exhibits. So they're getting, the majority are getting a, a good sort of physical experience. Here, but here's what you need to know. Less than half of these folks feel that the museum meets the needs of their family. Only 18% feel the staff, quote, unquote, really cares about them. And only 14% feel the museum helps bring the community together. Those are, I think, numbers to cause us to think. Um, And as you would expect, the overwhelming majority, 97% of these 5,000 visitors uh, classify themselves as white or Caucasian. So... Adults and families have different expectations of their visit, which kind of stands to reason. So remember, 55% of visitors to outdoor history museums are empty nesters and older adults. These folks are looking for immersive experiences. If they, if they could, and if the museum would allow it, they would love to spend a full day or even a night at the museum. They want longer activity times. They want early morning access to the grounds for walking um, or contemplation. They want personal connections. They want to be able to make personal connections while they're there, and they want well-informed staff. So that's the the older crowd. A sizable portion are people that are, are coming as a, without children in tow, so they're older and without children. And a sizable portion of these adult visitors are men um, visiting with their spouses. Now men 60 and older um, is, a, is a segment that um, rose to the top of Reach Advisor's kind of list, um, because they are a significant portion in this whole list. Um, And they visit for some very specific and interesting kind of reasons, Um, primarily because they love history, and they're seeking self-curated experiences that allow them to pursue their individual interests and deepen their experience. So it's kind of like the 60-plus male crowd wants to get in the gate, get into the institution, and just be let... To wander and follow his curiosity. Uh, He would love behind the scenes tours and some hands-on stuff. These are also the guys who would be the potential volunteers to work on restoration projects and stuff like that, you know, in in supervised kind of activities. um, They're really interested and they're interested in kind of doing it on their own in a way. More than half of this group visit more than once a year and find that the museum meets their needs. So they're kind of uh, they're, uh, they're they attend and they're they're happy. For empty nesters and older women, the visit is more about respite and escape. They love that environment and want to be immersed in that kind of environment. Families, on the other hand, whole different ballgame. game. Um, they're there for a family learning experience and to create family memories these visitors are generally thirty to forty years old and they tend to be moms with their kids um, two-thirds of the dads don't attend <laughs> and the reasons given are things like or the the wife would say well my husband just doesn't care for this kind of stuff or if there was more r-rated history maybe my husband would come along so 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 it's mo- mom with her kids in tow And 72% of them live less than an hour away, and uh, more than half of them tend to visit more than once a year. So, you know, look in that sort of hour driving radius and uh, to what the population is, and that's a a target for this particular demographic. Families are looking for action. They want costume staff. They want hands-on activities. They want demonstrations. They want reenactments. They don't want to just stand there and have an interpreter talk to them and only 36 percent of this group feel that the museum meets their needs in this regard so they want it they're not getting it so the bottom line is all this information is meaningless <coughs> unless the experience is an authentic one and this was a que- a big question asked during this uh, particular survey what does authentic mean In short, it means everything. Everything about the place has to ring true. And and one respondent said everything needs to be authentic. Being authentic is critically important to museum visitors. It's a huge challenge to museums because in addition to being important, it is expected by visitors. Museums then have to meet those significantly higher expectations, a challenge not necessarily true of museums' competitors for visitor leisure time. 58% of the comments um, in this survey reflected a desire for visitors to know the information provided to them from museum staff is grounded in research. They used uh, words like honest, true, correct, facts. For the majority of these visitors, then, trustworthiness is an issue. If they do not trust what you present, you are not authentic to them. A quarter of the respondents felt that authenticity meant the real thing, using words like real, honest, actual. For a history museum, it means they want to know that if that object in front of them is the actual one used by George Washington and not a replica or a reproduction of any type. So the question is, because if if they suspect that it's not the real thing, then they're not coming back. So how do you signal authenticity, and what do you steer clear of? The respondents indicated that the deeper and more immersive their experience was, the more authentic and desirable they found it. Those experiences, particularly in outdoor museums, are highly contingent on the interpretive staff that dress in the period, sometimes act of the period, and share what life was like in a certain time the enthusiasm, engagement, and interest of the staff and how important that was to visitors reaffirmed for reach advisors at any rate that hiring for attitude is far more important than hiring for aptitude. It's much more difficult to teach people to be friendly than it is interpretation skills or to train them to do a historic trade, that sort of thing. Other signals of authenticity include attention to details, no sneakers on the 18th century interpreters, careful site planning to minimize the appearance of modern facilities, and opportunities to create handmade takeaways, because anything you make yourself is considered authentic. Interesting. Interesting. Visitors found that the following to be serious authenticity disconnects. One, technology at historic sites, such as television and computers. Commercialization. And proclaiming your authenticity. <laughs> so in short, if you have to put proclaim you're authentic, that sends up red flags to visitors that mm, maybe you're not so. Uh, if you are authentic, which museums are, uh, pretty much by definition of visitor, for visitors, then you do not have to proclaim that you're authentic. And lastly, um, I thought you might be interested in a recent post Susie wrote for, Reach, for the Reach Advisors blog about interpretation preferences, preferences which draw on research from this particular survey. And the, t- the choices are tied closely to age and gender and parental status, but overall these results do shed light on the types of museum experiences that visitors prefer and I think they can be adapted to a whole a cross-section of institutions no, no matter what the discipline is so these are ranked in, um, in order from the least popular we're going to do the Letterman top ten list basically um, least popular to most popular interpretation activities least popular nothing at all <laughs> only three percent of respondents Prefer to go into um, an outdoor museum and have no labels, no little brochure. They just want to go in there, experience it, surprise, (laughs) you know, that sort of thing. Um, Next in line were videos and electronic media. Only 13% want it. A strong sense that while videos and electronic media were okay in the visitor center, they don't want to see it in the historic village or in any kind of historic space classes didn't rate very high Uh, only seventeen percent classes simply did not do that well particularly for those over seventy I can understand that Um, next came audio tours not high only nineteen percent of of respondents want audio tours Um, and again it it runs in the same mode as uh, videos and other electronic media there's they don't want that kind of electronics to be between them and the historic space. Um, So that's kind of interesting. Um, Thirty-one percent didn't want to talk to staff who weren't in costume. (laughs) In historic spaces, visitors simply prefer interacting with staff in costume, not in modern dress. Um, this preference, however, is tightly linked to age, gender, and parental status. So remember, you know, the families really want that kind of thing. Those older men, you know, they want, they want to talk to, to staff in modern dress and get the, you know, get, the straight, get the straight dope. Guided tours don't rate very high. They're only 45%. Um, and we know that the guided tour is the mainstay. Of historic house museums, most historic sites ranks nine out of this list of fourteen, so not not very high um, and again, I think it goes back especially to those families they they don't want that they want to be totally involved at at number eight uh were uh being on their own but with text panels or a brochure or something. So more, more people would rather be on their own, certainly, than with, with something in hand and interpretive um, information than to just walk in and kind of figure it out on their own. Tied for sixth place at 47%. Um, purchasing crafts, handmade on the site, and authentic dining experiences. This really resonates with pe- some people. Then we finally hit the 50% mark and 51% find hands-on activities their preferred interpretive experience. Interest in hands-on activities was highest with the young mothers in their 30s and 40s. 90% specifically sought out hands-on activities for children giving this the number one ranking for this demographic group. In the number four position Authentic musical performances, fiddles, organs, fifes, singing, the sounds of the past were important to a majority of respondents in this particular survey. Uh, At third, 75% live reenactments of the past, Um, particularly appealing again to those young mothers uh, with their children. Not necessarily military reenactments. We're talking about, you know, people just uh, costumed um, interpreters going about their sort of daily functions in a in a in a village or house environment. Um, and then at number two, 76% talking with historically costumed staff. Um, This personal uh, interaction with costumed uh, staff is, again, once again, popular with those family groups. And then number one, 86%, demonstrations, such as crafts or cooking, all about action. So looking at the top five choices, um, the respondents were very action-oriented. Demonstrations. We're almost a universal choice of visitors uh, to outdoor history museums. They love seeing people do stuff, whether it's blacksmithing or milking cows. Even better, they want to do it themselves. As one woman wrote, quote, being part of the demonstrations, helping with cooking or whatever. (laughs) So um, that kind of gives you a bit of a, hopefully a platform for us now to turn to our case studies and uh, to delve in a little bit more with what two institutions are, are doing, but um, I hope that this has been a bit helpful. I'm, I'm sure a lot of this information is not new to many of you, but it's worth reminding ourselves of what's, what's out there. Yeah, Joni. I hope I can answer it. Do we have to do a, do we have to do a mic for her? I'll ask it and I'll try and re-ask it. Oh. Okay.
0: Okay.
1: okay. <laughs> Thank you. So if you have questions of Susie, give me give me your business cards and I'll make sure she gets things. And then she'll
2: be in touch with you. Hi everybody, while we get ready for um, the PowerPoint because I'm not as technologically advanced as Gretchen is Um, I'm Kyle McCoy from the Arizona Historical Society and I am the director of the education and outreach programs. Um, Our museum uh, consists of seven museums spread throughout four cities and I have a small house museum in a very rural area to um, an urban center huge museum so looking at the demographics sometimes I need to really take a look at how it spreads throughout the state Arizona is a very unique um, Oh, thank you Arizona is a very unique situation Thanks. um... because all of the demographic information that Anne was talking about we're kind of right in the eye of the storm for everything and we're very fortunate also because our centennial is coming up in the year two thousand and twelve and so the governor has um... made there's so many studies on demographics going on in Arizona right now that it's been a great opportunity for us to take a look at what's already out there without having to pay for the studies so that was a really good benefit for us and we've really been taking advantage of it Um, most of the information that I'm going to give you a summary of right now has come from the Morrison Institute for Public Policy out of the Arizona State University And um, Bill Hart and Richard Toon were the ones, they have been doing studies on demographics preparing for the centennial since the year 2000. And so we've got a nice group of um, statistics to take a look at and see how we stack up against it. Now we are at the beginning of our journey with the historical society museums in order to take a look at the demographics and see how that translates to how we're going to do exhibits or how we're going to do programs so our case study is for those of you who aren't used to doing this who don't know where to start who get all of this demographic information and then you don't know how to break it down that's where i'm going to come from and i'm going to share um, some of the statistics for education i mean for arizona so you can see then how we're going from there so the first question we asked ourselves with who actually is arizona now if i talk to any of my colleagues in arizona they will tell you we are nothing but a bunch of snowbirds the retired people that move from you know, like minneapolis minnesota that come down and retire which makes a lot of things difficult and so I really wanted to find out exactly who we are because I wasn't sure if that was just one of those old wives' tales that kept getting passed down, or if that was in fact the truth. So here's a graph um, that talks about the population in Arizona from the 1950 to uh, predictions out to 2050. So you can see we are one of the fastest-growing areas in the nation. I'm sure you've heard that all on the news. Nevada, you know, the Southwest is pretty much a, a growing place. Um, Right here, we are at um, the 2006 results of the study said that we had over 6 million people in Phoenix, I mean, in Phoenix, Arizona alone. And then by the year 2012, when we are going to be having our centennial, they're expecting the population to be 7.4 million. So we are expecting huge increases um, as we go on. And so then part of what I needed to do was find out how this breaks down from the rural areas to the urban centers, because like I said, I have seven museums that I have to take into account for programming and outreach, and and they're all very, very different. And so here we take a look between 2000 and 2005, um, Maricopa is incredibly growing and it's probably even increased since then this is one of the largest population booms it was voted the the largest growing town in the nation last year um, this is on the outskirts of phoenix and in the desert when i mean outskirts i'm sure it's not what a lot of you guys i'm talking outskirts this is if somebody's living out there they're commuting at least an hour and a half into the city of phoenix to work uh... they have to really want to live out there Um, The other one is Saurita, which is outside of Tucson. So this tells us right away that we've got um, a couple areas that are growing that are right outside the existing urban areas already. It's not the rural areas that are growing. As far as Phoenix goes, this is where the problem has really begun, and I'm going to concentrate more on Phoenix, even though I'm going to give you some ideas about the rest of it because it's it's been found that for every 5 people that move into the Phoenix area, 3 move out. That gives us a really unstable population base to work from and I don't mean the people are unstable. I mean the numbers that are coming in and out are constantly changing. And there's no place else in the state of Arizona where this occurs. How many of you have a very stable base where people live in the same area, their grandparents live there, their grandparents live their great grandparents that's a totally different way of programming when you're involved with um, a population like that, when you have got people moving in and out. This this you know revolving door really does, has, it doesn't give us anything to build on all the time. So we have to uh, look at three different uh, other different ways to do this. So I wanted to take down and see about the counties. I also wanted to take a look at the different counties and where the growth was coming from there. And once again, you can see Maricopa about the middle way down um, 61%, and then farther down Pima is 15%. But if you will notice, the whole rest of the counties are down in the single digits or point something percent almost all of the population, the total is like 76% of Arizona's population resides in these two counties that are right around the only urban areas we have in the entire state. And you can see here the population changed by county. We've only had one county that's lost population and that's Greenlee County and for those of you who don't know that's where Sandra Day O'Connor came from. And um, it's a very rural farm area that is being transferred over to uh, federal lands, so they're, they're not building there anymore. But you'll notice that the Pinal County is the one that is showing a big growth, which that county happens to be sandwiched between Maricopa and Pima. So between Phoenix and Tucson is where the massive growth is. Now, what's happening there is we have a lot of golf resort areas that are going up there and a lot of retirement communities that are going up there. There's a lot of families that the husband works in Phoenix, the wife works in Tucson, they're buying homes in Pinal County, and they're both commuting because it's like right in the middle of the two. So going back to my Arizona's full of snowbirds, Um, is it really... Is it really? And this kind of backs up, Anne, what you were saying, that we have that hourglass that's going on in Arizona also. Now, on the age, on the uh, graph on the left, if you can see the first column is Arizona and the percentage of that age group that is living in Arizona, and the second one is the population percentage in the rest of the nation. So as you can see, under age five, we actually um, have... More of the young children living in Arizona than the national average. Same with the five to eighteen, nineteen to sixty-five. We're pretty close, but we're a little under. But look at the sixty-five plus. Point three percent. That's really not much. So we we have just as much of the um, the young and the old in Arizona, even though we have the the um, reputation of being a bunch of snowbirds. The race and ethnicity also goes along the same way. We're more white than the rest of the nation. And if you go down to the um, Hispanic Latino, you'll see that we are way, way more percentage-wise than the rest of the country. However, we are less black and Asian, and there's a big disparity between that. So what does this actually um, mean then? This means that we go along the national averages, we're just more um, pronounced with the location that we're at. So the next thing I wanted to know is what actually concerns the citizens of Arizona. Um, Illegal immigration and education is at the top of the list. Well, at the Arizona Historical Society, we can't really do a whole lot about illegal immigration. That has to do with the legislatures, and that's going to be up to them. However, when it comes to education, that's where we can help. That is something that we can definitely do. Um, The Arizona package then totally, we're young, old, diverse, and extremely, extremely transient. Education, of course, is at the top of the list, but I, you know, most people, when they're filling out a survey, fill out education is at the top of the list. Well, the future of Arizona, more growth. And so what does this actually mean then for Arizona and the historical society, and what are we going to do about it? Once we got all of these statistics on the outside, we had to start taking a look in and seeing what we had, what was our visitor study showing us. Um, What we found out was enough to echo again um, what Ann was saying. White females with children between the ages of 25 and 35 years old, middle to upper middle class, college graduates, and here was something interesting that we hadn't guessed. Um, They have been to the museum before and have not been there within the last year. So we're not getting a whole lot of people coming back. Um, even though we're in these general areas. So does anybody, does this sound like demographics to you, the visitor studies? Yeah, so um, based on all of these reports and what we did then, we wound up taking a look at what our actual attendance was in the Tempe Museum. And what I found out was that uh, 17,400 were serviced uh, for attendance by the education department alone. The overall admissions for the entire museum throughout the year was 2,000. So it's not that the public isn't coming to our education programs. They're not coming to the museum. They're just not even coming to the museum. So I compared, and I wanted to see what happened between last year and this year, and I found out that we've kind of flipped. What used to be our in-house service is now outreach, and the numbers have completely flipped and I wanted to share one of the reasons why this is happening in Arizona. In 2006 we were number 47 on the list. We have dropped down to 49 on dollars per pupil spending. Now, that, I know you're all saying, well, at least you're not last, right? Take a look at the Mississippi figure. There's like $140 per student that's, you know. So to me, we're tied for last. But then look at Washington, D.C. and New York with their spending of over, you know, $13,000 per student and $11,000. So even though Arizona says education is their top priority, we've dropped within the last couple years. So that that's a real problem with us. And so we had to try to figure out, what we were gonna do so I got with the um, the director of the Tempe Museum to try to figure out new aspects of what we're going to do to solve this problem he has taken it upon himself to insert himself into a lot of the community organizations that we don't normally touch and he's also trying to insert himself into the areas that that is our demographic in the museum, but that we're not expanding on and trying to get more. Um, Part of my recommendation was we need new exhibits. We have very tired, tired exhibits. Um, Our our social studies standards have just changed, so I'm pushing to get more of the... um, Exhibits standards based so we could get our school trips back up um, and even to get something from the public to get them more involved in it they don't care about standards but that same immersion thing with new exhibits that are more than interactive that are you know you can immerse yourself in is what where we're going for the future and um, that's about it from me I just wanted to tell you that um, for those of you who are struggling with the new demographics of the area I feel your pain if anybody has been through any of this and has got some um, ideas that they can tell me on how they've overcome some of these situations I am more than happy to take your um, advice at the end for the uh, questioning and answer okay thank you and uh, now we got Brooklyn not Brooklyn well the Brooklyn Children's Museum They're, they're the antithesis of what I've done they are on the other end where they've actually started implementing a lot of the changes
3: Just give me a second, and I'll maybe I'll try to introduce myself while I'm trying to figure this out at the same time. Maybe not. Hold on. I'm just gonna close it all out so I can see my things. Oh, okay. hit the.
0: You Oh, okay.
3: Perfect. Oh, you're good awesome. at math. Hey, look at that. Okay. Uh oh.
0: Try. Let's try. It's
3: saying it's there's an error accessing my file. Try again. <laughs>
0: okay. It was uh, done
3: on a PC. That make, it shouldn't make a difference? I have it on disk too, so we can okay, stick it okay. on disk. I'll get the disc, right? Because um, it's seeing my thing, it's just not... Uh-huh. I'll go get the disc. Oh, that looks promising.
0: Yeah, I think you've got it. i just unplugged um, it and re-plugged it. Okay. For some reason I'm using hers and I like it. So I didn't wanna. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's my notes, I don't wanna see
3: my notes.
0: Just that. Great. It'll
3: pop up in a no, That's fine. I have them here anyway. Hi, um, my name is Emily Timmel. I'm the uh, exhibit developer for Brooklyn Children's Museum's uh, World Brooklyn. <coughs> Liza Rawson, who is the project man- manager and senior developer on the project, was unable to attend because the exhibit is actually opening on Sunday. <laughs> so she sent me instead. So she apologizes for not being able to make it. Um, So World Brooklyn is slated to be the core cultural experience of the new Brooklyn Children's Museum. Um, Let's see, how do I do this? Uh, But we didn't start with the idea of doing an exhibit about Brooklyn. We actually started um, wanting to create an exhibit about world cultures. Um, Uh, After some time of doing some research, we realized wait a minute, we don't have to go further than our own backyard. Not to mention that our population, children ages 4 to 11, our target population, don't really get exhibits about world culture. Because <laughs> they, they don't really experience things outside of their own neighborhoods mostly. So going to an exhibit about Africa or, um, or China won't necessarily connect with them. So if it's an exhibit about people in Brooklyn, it's an easier connection. Um, So since the 17th century, Brooklyn has been home to an extraordinarily diverse population and continues to be so today. So it was an easy decision. Our exhibit, World Brooklyn, invites children and their grown-ups to discover, investigate, and explore Brooklyn as home to everyone from everywhere. Um, Over the past five years, uh, we've gone out uh, into Brooklyn and talked with families, uh, business owners, organizations to identify the activities and stuff for the exhibit. Research began actually in 2000, um, with starting with a literature review and uh, just overview research of our uh, cultural exhibits and other cultural exhibits that have been done for children. But it's been the past five years that we've actually been out in the field doing research. This is a map that illustrates the neighborhoods in Brooklyn that are represented in the exhibit. Uh, so more or less, literally, this exhibit will feature all, many people throughout Brooklyn. But we, did, our, we started with um, particular directives, though, that have helped us make the decisions and compromises of who's going to be in the exhibit. We were told by the board that we needed an exhibit about world culture, that we had to keep in the exhibit the pizza parlor, which was the most popular exhibit in the old museum, that we had to somehow represent the neighbors of the Brooklyn Children's Museum, the people in the direct vicinity of the museum. And then we also had to reach out to communities who are not coming to the museum that we want to see. So we had a lot on our plate. Um, but how do you begin doing an exhibit about Brooklyn and knowing that we couldn't represent everybody in Brooklyn we had to think about what are the combinations of cultural groups that would best offer a sense of the borough's diversity so we began looking at the most recent census and then we also contacted all the community boards in Brooklyn and talked with all the community boards about to tell us from their perspective who is in their district and uh, what are the most important Uh, activities that are happening, what are the cultural events, the community events that are really important and core to their constituencies. Um, So that's how we identified where people lived and who are the people we wanted to talk to and then we began walking Brooklyn and talking to Brooklyn. We're proud because though the museum's audience is diverse, uh, we weren't reaching many people and many people we talked to didn't even know about our museum and we've been around for over a hundred years. We met people who did not know us, though after some time they allowed us to talk to them, document them, and I'm happy to say they have since brought their families to the museum. Um, visitors experience World Brooklyn through a vibrant streetscape designed to reflect Brooklyn's diverse neighborhoods and their links to world cultures. We choose these settings because they reflected the types of businesses that support a community's cultural identity, and they offer a variety of entry points for kids to engage with the stuff and activities of culture. Um, Now, each exhibit features storefront windows with objects from our collection, and those newly purchased at the places and areas that we researched, as well as um, other object cases throughout that support all the hands-on activities. Uh, Each area has sales counters with cash registers and phones that connect to each of the stores. so You can be in one store and call another. Um, And each also has introductory panels with digital slideshows of actual store owners. Um, the stores and information about the communities themselves. Um, and as I mentioned, we wanted to represent as many people as possible. But this is an exhibit, not the census. And so this is kind of where um, idealism and practicality meet to make an exhibit. Not everyone is in the exhibit, and not everyone is uh, presented with the same emphasis. Um, you know, in some cases people just didn't want to work with us, or in some cases um, we we were we had these directives from the from the board to keep certain people in. Um, anyway, let me do a quick walk through. Uh, when you first enter World Brooklyn, you come to a uh, MTA, an actual New York City bus truncated with a bus shelter that introduces the theme of the exhibit as well as a, a map of Brooklyn. You come down the street. When you come to this area, it feels like you're on a sidewalk and it's a compressed streetscape of Brooklyn. You'll, have a, you'll come to a Chinese stationery store Then you walk down and you see a Mexican bakery, an international grocery, um, an African import store, a Caribbean travel agency and masquerade camp, an Italian uh, restaurant, and then this is our World Dance and Music Theater. The. The Chinese Stationery Store is based on the World Journal Bookstore, which is um, on 8th Avenue in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, one of our two or three Chinatowns in Brooklyn. Um, the World Journal is a national chain and you'll find them you'll find, um, one of these in most any uh, Chinatown in North America. We also, uh, so this exhibit area looks at uh, themes of Chinese New Year, as well as Chinese writing and books. And for the, is that me? OK. Um, and uh, with, for the Chinese writing component, we worked with the Brooklyn Chinese American Association, which has a Chinese school for uh, local children. Uh, our bakery is based on Don Paco Lopez Panaderia, which is a Mexican bakery in Sunset Park. Um, this area features Day of the Dead, act, uh, activities about Day of the Dead, baking and other cultural traditions that the uh, bakery supports uh, by selling different things for each of the holidays and other activities of the community. Uh, We actually went to, at four in the morning, we took a videographer and a photographer and documented the bakers preparing for Day of the Dead. It was a lot of fun for everybody. Um, Our international grocery is one of the two places, this and the music store, that um, features multiple. Perspectives and is a composite of many places that you can find in Brooklyn. Um, this, these are just a couple of the stores: Damascus Bakery and Sahadi's, and we have a Nordic Deli, a, a Chinese uh, Sunnies, which is a Chinese uh, fish market, Hellas, which is a Greek um, store, and we have so many others that are represented uh, in this area. Uh, you can shop for groceries from around the world, um, read about the different stores, and as well as shop with uh, one of five, or as many as you want to, five different families um, that tell us the story of their family and their family traditions and give us a shopping list for a special meal. <laughs> Our West African import store is based on uh, Oa African Market in Clinton Hill. This uh, area talks about... Um, the activities are around uh, folk art traditions where uh, visitors can build stools, design textiles and meet two West African fashion designers based in Brooklyn who take their traditional techniques and adapt them to Western styles. And then we have um, Sesame Flyers International. This is our Caribbean travel agency which uh, introduces the diversity of Brooklyn and right. Uh, of the Caribbean. And then right behind the travel agency is our Masquerade Camp. Sesame Flyers International is a community um, organization based in East Flatbush, which is where a, a large Caribbean population is. They work with kids in after school and they also uh, participate in the West Indian um, Day Carnival, which is a big carnival in uh, down Brooklyn. And Sesame Flyers is the largest group to perform. So activities here include um, playing the steel pan, designing, building and wearing carnival costumes, um, and learning about what masquerade is. Here is Ellen B. Gardens. It's our Italian restaurant um, that we, we base our Italian restaurant on. Ellen B. Gardens Gardens was established in 1939 and is in Bensonhurst. Um, activities include making pizza, uh, both Sicilian and Neapolitan. Um, serving spumoni, and uh, out in the outdoor eating area are tables that feature um, and the fake outdoor eating area, the pretend outdoor eating area um, that feature uh, information about festivals and activities that are um, linked to the Italian community throughout Brooklyn. And we also have a uh, Vespa <laughs> parked outside that you can uh, that kids can pretend to ride and fix like a mechanic because that's based on scooter batego. Uh, Bottega, which is um, a fairly new Vespa shop in Brooklyn uh, that uh, recent immigrant Arturo Brucci has uh, opened up. Uh, Global Beats Theatre features uh, music and dance around the world that is played and performed in Brooklyn. Um, The main part is an interactive dance theater where visitors can put on costumes and join seven different dance groups Uh, on stage, uh, including the Polish-American Folk Dance Company, the Gowanus Wildcats, who are an African-American girls uh, drill team, uh, Brighton Ballet Theater, which is a Russian-Ukrainian ballet and folk dance troupe, Red Hawk Arts Council, Native American dance group, Anup Kumar Das, who's a Bangladeshi folk dancer, Donnie Golden School of Irish Dancing, and the Salam Detka Ensemble, which is a pan-Arab teen uh, folk dance group. This area also features uh, world music. We have uh, cases of instruments from around the world from our collection, as well as photos and stories of different um, music stores and uh, musicians and music groups that um, represent uh, every single continent in the in the world. Uh, What we're particularly proud of, and this is not something that every uh, museum can do, is that our Exhibit was also built in Brooklyn by Brooklynites. Um, When we met with RH Guest, Inc. about possibly fabricating World Brooklyn, his pitch was basically his own version of World Brooklyn, um, and it worked. More Brooklyn people were involved in creating the exhibit about themselves. This is the way we approached the exhibit planning the entire time. Uh, We reached out, talked, and listened, and engaged people. And we're hoping that this will happen. We'll see what happens next week. And that's my presentation. I have a quick video to end everything to really give you a flavor of of World Brooklyn, if you just give me a second to change disks.
4: Click it.
3: <laughs> this video is um, going to be in the bus as part of the introduction to the to the exhibit. Enjoy. Uh, The photographs were all things we took and documented through the past five years. Marty Markowitz is the Brooklyn Borough President. <laughs> this is a, a new permanent exhibit, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I'm sorry, I have um, pamphlets up at the front table that um, about the new museum opening, if you're interested.
0: So we'd like to invite to comments and questions, and if you have something to say, could you please use this
3: microphone
0: so it can be recorded?
1: My question is for Emily. Mm -hmm. Was there a discussion of, and did it happen, of making the DVD for sale In the museum shop, or a a longer version of it, I'm curious about that.
3: Oh, sure. uh, There are a lot of uh, there's a couple of things from the exhibit that we have um, are are going to make available in the gift shop, but the video is not one. We haven't. I don't think that came. Actually, hasn't come up, but um, it would be interesting to bring up that.
5: I'm, I'm curious to know from the speakers, I guess first, can yeah. you hear me? Uh, from the speakers and, and maybe the audience uh, to the extent that anyone might have any experience to share, and that is how your knowledge of these changing demographics has either changed the demographics in your own institution, on your own staff, and to what extent, if any, the changing demographics have influenced your your collections?
2: I'll um, start. Like I said, we're we're right at the initial implementation of some of the things we're going to do. We've had, for the first time, real serious focus groups that have been helpful to where the community thinks that the museum needs to go. Prior to this point, they had focus groups, um, but they weren't really listened to. The recommendations from the community really weren't listened to. It was a very traditional staff, a traditional-minded staff that was like, I'm the curator, I have the information, you know, thank you for your input, but we know better. And um, the staff has gone through a real change, I would say, within the last two years with, you know, just natural people leaving for other positions and the opportunity to fill new positions. So um, we don't have a very diverse staff at this point, but we do have the first Hispanic, Latinos, and um, African Americans that are on the staff ever in this museum, finally. (laughs) and um, we actually um, have even been reaching out to the um, American Indian groups and um, getting them to come in to do internships and stuff like that. So for the first time, the Historical Society in the Tempe um, area has been doing that. How it's affecting our collections, I don't really know that to the point, but I do know that is definitely, in fact, uh, impacting the um, input for the exhibits and the programming that will be from this point forward. Does that answer your question? Okay.
3: Anybody else? I can speak. Okay. Um, I can speak to the collections, not the the staff. Throughout the exhibit development process, we did acquire additional objects that we needed to support the activities we were planning. Um, there are there were particular. Um, objects or or groups that weren't represented with our collection and we did um, uh, procure those.
5: And I'll
1: make just one general observation as a representative of the State Museum Association where I get to go out in the field across New York State and I talk with a lot of organizations and I feel that or I I, I sense that there's um, a, a reticence or a lack of many institutions reaching out into their, I mean really reaching out into their communities in some really serious and new ways that many, many history museums tend to rely on the audiences they know and we've gotta gotta break that cycle. Uh, This is not a diverse field and um, you know that study Gretchen wrote me this note after I sat down you know that outdoor history museum 97% white visitors so we're missing the boat and and i and i just think it's because there's a, there has been a lack of a systematic approach to diversifying our workforce as well as our audiences and it's a it's a big nut to crack but it's it's with us and it's been with us for a while and we got to figure out a way to crack it so
6: uh, wanted to, to thank Ann for sharing the information from the Outdoor History Museum survey again. Um, but if, if people were furiously writing down you know, the facts and figures she was giving, I want to second the point she said to go to reachadvisors.typepad.com because all of those facts and figures are there in past blog posts. And I guess while I've got the microphone, just give a quick plug, too, because we've been working with them with the Connecticut Humanities Council. And coming up in November, you're going to see a lot of information coming up from a study we did with 25 different museums and other cultural organizations around the state to find out what people want to do in Connecticut and why they visit museums and other heritage organizations and uh, children's museums and uh, why they want to become members. So I'm kind of excited to see that stuff come out over the next couple of months as well.
0: I have to add something here. As a member of a minority group, museum, we spend so much time talking to the people that come and that's what we've been talking about this morning. These are the people that go to Living History Farms. You're talking about the people that visit in Connecticut. What about the people that don't come? why not figure out why they don't come if we're not doing something right let's 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 ask the people that aren't there not the people that are already satisfied so
3: and gretchen just to add to your point point, um, when we met with people in the communities that didn't know of us or hadn't been and we told them what we were doing and they, they came to the museum and they were so excited and um it was, it was really touching when we were doing a, 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 a prototype test of a dance exhibit, and we were using the um, Arab teen group uh, video for visitors to interact with. Uh, one family knew that it was coming, that it was going to be on. They came, they loved it. The following week, when we were testing again, we had five more families from that same population who came to interact. And they, were, they came and thanked us for having, quote unquote, them in the exhibit. It, it was really amazing.
7: I want to follow up on the, that, this exact point about attracting new audiences and diverse audiences. And I think in the conversations we've heard, one theme um, that really strikes me that challenges us as local and regional history organizations is that a lot of our population uh, of, in every region have a family history and a personal history that is separate from the place they now live. And I think certainly there is a cultural reluctance within history museums to reach out to populations that are unlike ourselves. But the other challenge is how do we marry the local story that's supported by our evidence and our environment with stories that are, with people who are coming from somewhere where they don't have that personal connection. I really see that as one of the challenges that hurts any efforts to present a more diverse story. I don't know, it's a very vague comment, but I wonder if any of you can speak to that. How do we find history stories to connect to today's potential visitors?
2: Um, I'm going to shamelessly plug a book I just wrote. Um, I just wrote a fourth grade social studies textbook for the state of Arizona that um, was the only textbook out there now that goes according to all of the state standards. And one of the things that I was really concerned about was making history relevant and, and a a continuum instead of what you normally see in typical textbooks and I introduced a whole ex- a whole um, chapter on the people that moved to Arizona. We had a lot of people that were relocated from Katrina, we have a lot of the Lost Boys of Sudan, I and mean, we have all of these groups that nobody's collecting for yet. Because of the book we were able to have a festival the, to bounce off the book where we started collecting the oral histories and um, if people wanted to bring in photographs and scan, you know, if they didn't want to leave them with us. So in that case, we were able to bring more people in. Now, that is that is only in the Tempe area. I don't have that problem in Flagstaff, Yuma, and Tucson. That's, uh, that's an area that is very proud of their heritage Susonans will tell you if they're 8th, ninth, 10th generation from the Spaniards that first founded the place in 1775. But one of the things in in Tempe that is one of our biggest problems. And I believe if we're not reaching out to get into the community, they're certainly not going to come into our doors. And so that's the approach that we're taking for Tempe. nobody else.
7: I'm with the Kentucky Historical Society, and when I arrived, I kind of inherited an immigration exhibit. Mm-hmm. We have a very active folk life program, and we collect
1: oral. We have a very active oral history program. But interestingly enough, we found a great disconnect as far as collections are concerned. Um, even though we try to reach out to diverse, the diverse populations that are coming into the state. Traditionally, we don't have a very
7: large immigrant
1: population, but right now we're one of the fastest growth states for Hispanics, et cetera. And we found that we didn't have these things in our collections, um, and that most of what we put on display were loans. So even if we have an, out, an active outreach, we have a very active folk life program. There's still disconnects within the institution that we need to work on. So
2: yeah, right. Right. yeah. Not everybody wants to hand their stuff over. Gretchen's <laughs> getting <Yeah>. Go Gretchen, <Gertrudeville. laughs> Thanks, Oh, you're Um, showing your
6: age now. (laughs) I'm not getting any younger. I was for a while. Um, It's interesting. A lot of the comments that are raised uh, seem seem to be about diversification of audience. When a lot of the talk, the stuff with the reach, reach advisors' research was about uh, who, who's already coming, and um, I think those are both two sides of the uh, of the coin. And and. if we're worried about financials, I'm afraid we're going to have to be thinking a lot more about who's already come, trying to already attract the audience that you already have rather than attract new audiences. So that was the one part of the comment. The The other comment is I think I bet a lot of us were, were thinking about this um, as Ann was talking and I think that Joni might have been referring to something about that. It's just the cost involved. Yeah. that we, it's, it's to do those things well are enormously labor-intensive, both in terms of how many people are doing it, how much training they require, and there are things that most places cannot do. Um, And so the question I would wonder is, should you try to do the things that you really don't have the resources to do, or to die, try to do things much, much better for the resources that you already have. So the guided tour, which is the, you know, is the mainstay of, of the house museum that I work at, they need to be improved dramatically. But I don't think we can do those other things. And I think that's a, and so we shouldn't necessarily extrapolate also from um, the outdoor museum, which offers a particular experience that yeah. maybe you don't go to every, every museum to see. Um, so I think we need to be careful with those those statistics, what we do with them. That's
0: all. I was a little confused actually coming from Cooperstown where um, we have a living history farm, the Farmers Museum, and what has been done since the 1940s is demonstrations. But visitation at living history farms is going down, so my question to reach associates would be it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If we've been doing living history demonstrations, actually in Cooperstown I will say the, the visitation has not gone down, but it, it is it is level. But they do demonstrations of cooking, demonstrations of blacksmithing, craft demonstrations, all the things that Reach Associates proposed yeah. are the mainstay of Living History Farms. So you know, where, why, why is the visitation at Living History Farms going down? Maybe it's because that audience that finds them popular is, it, is shrinking.
1: It's at the center of the, that audience. The, those Gen
0: X moms and their She's at the
1: center of that hourglass. There's less of them than what's above and what's below. And maybe that's, I don't know. We we have to find that out. Yeah.
4: Hi, I'm with the National Park Service in St. Louis with the Gateway Arch. And we're going to have a two-day event at the end of September that's been entitled Park Palooza. And it's an, it's an attempt to um, let people know what kinds of activities are going on in all the parks. We are an urban park, but uh, there's also been a lack of attendance in, in all national parks in the last several years. So this event is going to have activity stations in which there's going to be demonstrations of things like um, rock climbing, hiking, biking, boating. We're getting the Corps of Engineers, the Coast Guard. Um, different safety groups and teaching kids on how to do these things safely, combined with the cultural events where we're going to have living history objects demonstrating that sort of thing. And it's all in an effort to try and get families to understand, you know, what's going on in all the parks and what kinds of activities they can do. So again, it's it's um, another way of engaging people and re-energizing the idea of you know, visiting your national parks. So, This is more of just a comment,
6: but there's also, I think, with a lot of us, maybe two different kinds of groups, in the sense of where I work, uh, I work at a battleship, so we're more dependent on tourists, and we're talking mom and the kids, you're really, some of you are really focused on your local community repeat visits and we have that in our town of Wilmington so you have museums that are more focused on the local community participation and repeat visits versus my museum which is more dependent on tourism and so like in Cooperstown is it also possible maybe your tourism isn't what it was either I mean there's those kind of bigger right it's a huge tourism area, so for you, it might not just be your museums, but is overall tourism up or down in your area. So there are other larger questions, and what kind yeah. of audience do you have, tourists versus yeah, locals? Our,
2: our Flagstaff Museum relies completely on tourism from the Grand Canyon, and they have dropped drastically this year. I'm pretty sure it has a lot to do with the gas prices. I mean, tourism's down nationwide on that. Um, But uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix area, tourism, yes, but that's if you're coming in to see a baseball game or, you know, something like that. The people that are coming in for the tourism in Phoenix aren't necessarily looking for the museum like they are in Flagstaff because it's just like a package deal with the Grand Canyon. So, yeah, I do understand what you're talking about there. Yeah, tourism is a a big part of it, too.
0: Tourism is actually down at all living history farms. Cooperstown is... um... Stable, and so is um, the one in uh, uh, what is it called? Starbridge. Which one? Starbridge? Oh no, no, Connor Prairie. Connor Prairie is the other one. The, those two are are stable, but the um, others are. There's a general downward trend, and it's not just this year. Huh? Oh.
5: <laughs>
0: and
1: that's what frustrates me. Is I feel we have a dearth of information that our industry does not research itself well enough we have these bits and pieces all around we have to pull from a wide um, array of, of information some old some newer we're not and I, I think it's well i i feel that we need to really put the pressure on our national associations and our state associations to do to give us more research that we can really use that makes sense so
5: yeah it 's uh, just to comment again on the on the demographics. one of the things that was mentioned at the director 's breakfast this morning was that history has not been this popular in a general uh, sense in a long time with the history channel, uh, the history detectives on public television things like that it would be interesting to compare the demographics of those television programs with the demographics of museum visitors and see if there 's a, a connection or a disconnect, another another segment that's watching TV but not coming to museums. Uh, and, and as to the applicability of the of the living history, outdoor experience to the more traditional um, uh, sites, uh, you know that 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 authenticity is is the key. And even if you can't demonstrate the authentic object, if you have one in the collection and you say to the visitor, I can't let you touch that but here's a copy of it, here's a reproduction, uh, there are ways to make those connections even in a traditional setting uh, that, that apparently is what's needed because people who spend their lives in front of a screen pushing buttons really do want to see how things worked before electronics. So there are nuggets to be plucked from, from, from all of these presentations.
0: Well thank you very much. I'm sure our presenters would stay a few minutes if anyone has any um, other questions or comments. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. I'm this
2: from here. Oh, yeah, this is I need to go talk to
7: the-